0: Welcome to episode 102 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters.
2: Hey,
0: brother. Hey, brother. Question cast time. It is question cast, that beautiful time of the month where... People get to hear other voices besides just you and I.
1: Yeah. And we don't like to waste time on Question Cast because it's always so jam loaded. So let's do a couple quick announcements and then we'll get right into it. Let's do it. Jesse,
0: we have
1: some congratulations to extend. Yeah, so, I hear
0: some congratulations are in yes, order.
1: So we have two listeners named Colton and Zoe who I don't believe our podcast had anything to do with them getting together, but they recently got engaged and I'm super excited for them. So I've been talking to Colton a little bit online. They just have a really cool story. God's really been working powerfully in their life. And I just wish them all the luck on their future marriage.
0: Can we just talk about for a second how that's like a serious power couple name yes. combination? It is. It really is. Colton and Zoe, what would be like the portmanteau of their names? Zoltan. <laughs> Which
1: is either the name of a Power Ranger or like a magician from the 70s.
0: You came up with that so fast and we did not discuss this ahead of time. Yeah,
1: or it could be like Kozoe, but I don't think that works quite as well. No, Zoltan is crazy good. Yeah, so as a engagement gift, we are going to go ahead and set out some coffee mugs. So Colton, I need you to message me on Facebook and let me know where to send those coffee mugs and we'll get them out in the mail.
0: Is that like basically a standing arrangement we have? No. If this podcast helps you get engaged? If, if you get engaged because of this podcast.
1: If you get engaged because of this podcast, then let us know and we'll figure something out. Love it. But I don't think we have enough money to say everybody who gets engaged or whatever gets a mug.
0: <laughs> you think we have that many people?
1: I don't know. We are, could. We might.
0: That this podcast is basically bringing them together. and Maybe people of
1: will begin to get engaged just so they could get their mugs.
0: Well, that's a really long con right there.
1: It is. I'll tell you a secret. You can just buy a mug for way less than you could buy an engagement ring if you want.
0: That's a good call. And if somebody were going to follow through with that and actually buy a mug, where would they go?
1: Rootedapparels.com. So last time I tried to say it, I said reformedapparels.com, and that's not the address. But people found it anyways. All right. Well, let's get into some questions. Go ahead.
3: Hey, guys, this is Ronnie Wincherton in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, I appreciate what you guys do. So um, I thought I had heard you guys say in one of your podcasts that you are a presuppositionalist, and I have a question about um, self-authentication of the Bible. Um, What exactly are we as Reformed believers communicating when we say that the Bible is self-authenticating? And how is that different from saying the Bible is true because I believe it is true? Um, And how do we explain that to people who may not believe the Bible or explain um, stories about people who've read the Bible but don't believe it? Um, So any, any of your thoughts there would be very helpful, and I appreciate what you guys do. Thank you, and have a good one.
0: All right, Ronnie from Raleigh. I want to say first, starting off, I love it when people's names are in alliteration with where they're from. That's just a real crowd pleaser.
1: Yes, it's good.
0: It's good stuff. I'm I'm totally down with that. And this is a really great question to start off on. So what are we communicating as Reformed believers when we say that the Bible is self-authenticating? Because a lot of people put forward this argument that all absolute truth at some point is self-authenticating, but the Reformed tradition has a couple of really wonderful distinctives here. So what would you say kind of top of mind are the ones that come quickly to you?
1: So, you know, one of the ways you phrase this question and one of the kind of concerns is how is it different from claiming that the Bible is true because I believe it's true? And it's right. actually claiming the reverse of that. We're not saying that the Bible is true because I believe it's true, as though our belief is somehow evidence that that authenticates the Bible, because that's, that's actually 100% opposite of what we're saying. Instead, what we're saying is that I believe the Bible is true because it is true. And that truth, the truth of the Bible and the way that the Bible demonstrates itself to be true is what ultimately convinces me with the with the working of the Holy Spirit that it is, in fact, the Word of God.
0: Yeah, I like that approach because I think, especially in relating it to the reform stream of theology, the doctrine of scripture is especially critical to the reformed tradition. So it's of course more than just saying, well, the Bible says it; I believe it." that settles it. This may sound like a super obvious statement, but I find that this is actually what sets us on the right path. And that is the Bible tells us the truth about reality. And that statement itself is under attack. I think all across Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, then the, one of the beautiful things about the Bible, of course, is because it tells us truth about reality, we should expect to see all this exogenous proof, which we see geographically, historically, in archaeology that it is in fact true, but we have to start with that basic understanding. And that's the presuppositional portion of authenticating that the Bible is true. Right.
1: Yeah. And so just to make sure we're tying this to our kind of confessional tradition, question four of the Westminster Lodger Catechism says, How doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? And the answer is the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. By their light and power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone, able fully to persuade it that they are the very word of God. So what this is getting at is there's kind of two, two main sections. You could actually say three. There's kind of the, um... Outward evidences that the Scripture presents. The outward evidences might not be the right word. The outward characteristics that demonstrate it to be not simply of human origin but of divine origin. And so the the majesty and purity, the fact that it's it's a grand and glorious uh, text, and that it's pure. There's a there's a purity that sort of exudes from the text that that you can see. That the text is consistent, the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole. So that's kind of a restrictive statement. Is that um, you know, if there's a text that we have that doesn't give glory to God, then we know that it's not the scriptures. We know that God right. would not breathe out text that somehow does not glorify him. And then, then there's sort of this second of that first part that says by their light and power to convince and convert sinners. So we, we see that it's the word of God because it's efficacious to accomplish what the word of God claims it's there for. So the word of God, you know, second Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So so those things, we know that the scripture is the scripture if it is ultimately uh, efficacious for doing that and then also to comfort and build up believers. And then this, this next part is not so much how do we outwardly prove or how do we demonstrate the word of God is that the scripture is the word of God. But how is it the case that I, as an individual come to be convinced of that? And the, the the divines here are saying the only way that I come to be convinced of that as an individual, it's not by the testimony of the church. It's not by archeological evidences. It's not by any of those kinds of things. It's that the spirit of God tells me that it is. He bears witness in my heart along with the scripture uh, that testifies to and persuades me that it's the word of god and that ties into that sort of presuppositional approach that you're talking about is when when we go to try to convince someone or talk to someone about the scriptures, and they're saying like, well, here's, here's this objection, here's that objection. There's, there's an infinite or nearly infinite number of possible objections that a person could have, or possible right. critiques a person could level against the scripture that we know as Christians that we know are not, they're not solid critiques, they don't land square. But we aren't always going to be able to explain all of the reasons why that's not the case. And what we're getting at here is that that's not our job. Right. Spurgeon is the one who said, you know, defend the Bible, I'd sooner defend a lion. And his point is you don't have to defend the Bible because the Bible is sufficient to accomplish that on its own without our help. We just need to preach the gospel, preach the word, and let the Holy Spirit convince and convict people of, of the scriptures.
0: Right on. I love that because there's part of the difference, I think, is this idea that when we when we say self authenticating I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because a lot of, again, a lot of other religious worldviews will say, well, that's just part and parcel for what it means to have some kind of conviction of faith. However, what we're talking about here is something altogether different because basically the canon itself, the teaching of the books, ultimately the canon is self-authenticating because the voice of Christ is heard in it. So. The fact that God's people have universally affirmed that there is only one thing that can legitimately function as a supreme standard, and that being God's word, is pretty well established. But if there can only be one authority, the question is, where do we go to find that authority? Where is God's word to be found? And of course, while the Roman Catholic Church authorities agreed that God's word was the ultimate standard for all of life and doctrine. They also believe that the word could be found in places outside the scriptures. So right. Rome continues to claim this trifold authority structure, right? Which is scripture, tradition, magisterium. Yeah. And totally juxtaposed to that is the conviction of sola scriptura, which is that the scriptures alone are the word of God. And therefore that's the only infallible rule for life and doctrine. So this is what's different is we have Christ who is, basically authenticating the scriptures with his voice, with his actions, with his studying, with his, his own stamp of approval, so to speak. And then we have you know, Christ and the evidence of him, of course, going to the grave, being historically grounded, and then rising again. That's totally different than, say, like the Quran, which people would say is self-referencing. Right. But it's self-referencing in this way. They would say, like, well, how do you know that Muhammad is a prophet? And then it's, most Muslims will say, well, because the Quran says so, well, how do you know that the Quran is the word of Allah? It's because Muhammad says so. Right. So it's like one endorsing the other. It's this kind of weird circle. That's very dis- different from what we're talking about. Right. Yep,
1: exactly. And you know, uh- Probably a, an example of this in real life might make sense. So I've talked about my friend Chris uh, Lilly before, who you know went to Princeton, kind of became a card-carrying liberal theologian, and then just simply by reading the scripture and allowing the Holy Spirit, being changed by the Holy Spirit, he came to reform convictions. And so I'm actually publishing a series of five uh, blog articles on my blog on reformedarsenal.com that he wrote you know, he used to be kind of a staunch theistic evolutionist and I, I didn't try hard to convince him. Um, I didn't, we didn't have long arguments. I didn't present a bunch of evidence, but when he would ask me a question, I would just say, well, what did the scripture say about that? And uh, w- well, how does, how does what you're saying square up with Romans five, or how does what you're saying square up with Genesis one or two? and, this series of articles is called why I'm no longer a theistic evolutionist. And Chris more or less came to this conviction by reading the scripture and by the testimony of the Holy spirit in his heart. So that's, that's not exactly the same thing except for the fact that one of the main arguments that he's making now is that the theistic evolution position does violence to the text of Genesis. And so he's, he's coming to a more robust understanding of the veracity of the word of God by reading the word of God and by the Holy right. Spirit testifying. So there were, of, of course, there are other external arguments that he considered and things that helped convince him. Um, but the ultimate final authority for him was that this is what the scriptures say, This is what the scriptures appear to be teaching. And, and this, this gels with my soul. I mean, this, this sits well with what I already know to be the truth, not from just an intellectual perspective, but that, that knowledge of the truth that we have deep down in our spirits, the scriptures are authenticated by and through that internal knowledge that the Holy Spirit grants us.
0: Right. And we should differentiate because that's really important. What you just said there, differentiate from other worldviews that would hold that type of position, but would have inconsistencies in the text that they use. And who I'm thinking of in particular is Mormons, because if you interact with Mormons and they give you a copy of the Book of Mormon, what they'll say is you'll know it's true because you'll feel it burning in your bosom. Right. And yet we know that the Book of Mormon is totally just not in line at all with what the scriptures say. Right. So there we have a lack of continuity in in some kind of feeling that we can manufacture that it's true versus what the text actually says.
1: Right. And what's interesting is at the end of the day, that's not even really what they believe. Right. So you'll know it's true because there's this burning in your bosom, which if I have a burning in my bosom, I just take some Tums. But... They actually are saying, you know, it's true because our prophet or our president says that it's true. Right. So I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's this whole big thing about the Mormon church that they're saying, like, well, we received a revelation from God. You're not supposed to call us Mormons anymore. Right. So so they're in this sort of influx revelation where none of that is necessary in what we're trying to articulate. There's no external evidence necessary. There's no person that has to tell you this. Ultimately... Um, What we believe, if you boil it all down, is that if you give a person who is the elect, you give them a Bible— the Holy Spirit is going to convince them that this is the word of God and is going to render salvation in their hearts. Now, ordinarily that happens through the preaching of the word, especially in in the gathered congregation of the saints. But if you envision this this sort of hypothetical situation where you have someone on a desert island and they're among the elect and a Bible somehow gets airdropped out of the sky on them, what we're saying is that all that is necessary for that person to come to a full conviction that what they have is the very word of God is that book itself and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that's right. what's very different from worldviews like Islam and worldviews like the LDS and, and other that claim similar kinds of things, is they're going to say on one hand, well, yeah, you can just look at it and see it. But then they're also going to say, but there's this external authority that ver- verifies it or, or gives it validity. And that's, that's what this ultimately boils down to, is that if we look to the fact that we found the city of Jericho and it looks like the walls fell outward instead of inward and all this archeological evidence, or we finally come to some scientific conclusion that, that proves that the Genesis account is exactly as it says it is. All of those things would be excellent, but if those are what we turn to, to prove that the word of God is the word of God, then we have now made those things an authority over the scripture. And that's really what this is
0: all about. Right. That is the major difference in the presuppositional worldview there. Yeah. Like that stuff almost doesn't matter it doesn't the i mean it's it's the Bible helpful says it's, true.
1: it's helpful but i mean on a practical level have you ever gotten i mean they we're kind of past the world of like email forwards it's mostly like a facebook thing now and you're not really on facebook but um You know, I remember when I was first becoming a Christian, I would get all these, like, emails from my grandma that were like, the missing day of Joshua has been found. And it's like some (laughs) contrived story about, you know, software that NASA's using to compute where stars are and where they should be. And some some NASA scientists discovered that we're 23 hours off. And so they remembered, you know, and they went and cross-referenced it. And, oh, lo and behold, everything lines up if you account for Joshua's long day. Well that's good and fine except that it never happened and so when we start to we rely on these things these sort of pop apologetic things that end up being totally invented. If my faith in the scripture was built upon the rock of Joshua's long day and the NASA explanation, then I have no foundation whatsoever. And so on a practical level, it's important that we look to the word of God as the ultimate authority, because if it's not the ultimate authority, then we're making something else, the ultimate authority. And that thing is going to fail us at some point. And if it fails us and it's our ultimate authority, then that has the potential to shipwreck our faith. Yeah, that's well said. Next voicemail? Next voicemail. Let's do it.
4: Hey, bros. It's Jonathan from Hawaii, and I'm calling to uh, get a conversation going or hear your thoughts on federal headship or maybe just headship as it applies to men in the family, Uh, men as husbands, and men as fathers to their children. Um, So we see in Romans 5, one man sin. uh, We all sin in Adam one man's righteous act through Christ we all receive justification and life but i want to see if there's a link between Romans 5 and Ephesians 5 and what we can extend uh from what we know is true in Romans 5 uh into Ephesians 5 so what can we rightly extend from federal headship into the role of husbands as the heads of the, their wives um, just as Christ is the head of the church, what can we rightly extend and what should we not extend from the example in Romans 5, uh, into Ephesians 5? So kind of coming from my background, uh, modern evangelical, probably dispensationalist background, uh, the, the concept of federal headship and, uh, headship just really wasn't, I don't think, talked about, uh, that much, but coming, uh, into contact with some, you know, reform theology, covenant theology in the past decade, I would say, uh, we see that God really does use families as a means to uh, bring about change and sanctification and salvation. He works through families. Um, So I think ultimately this should drive us to a deeper repentance and a deeper dependence upon Christ. Um, It should humble us. Uh, But as we talk about our role as heads of our households, um, I think as Jesse would say, we should really just try to grow some shoe leather, uh put those bad boys on, and really get to walk in. Uh, come away with some firm application of how we can better care for our wives, better care for our children um, or our families as a whole, and really be good heads of our households. So let me know what you think. Um, talk about it. Um, but on a side note, as an extension to this voicemail I would say that this is my plug for BeachCast five maybe being in Hawaii uh, we could be we could do the first you know surfboard mounted podcast Um, I think that could be pretty interesting maybe do some some dolphin gazing Uh, Tony I also have a Westie I just thought about this we both have Westies that's pretty cool um I also have a guest bedroom. Uh, this is getting really creepy, but if you guys are ever in Hawaii or ever planning to come to Hawaii, stay in our house one night, at least. Um, anyway, this is, this has been nice. All
0: right. So this is not creepy at all. Jonathan, (laughs) thank you for inviting us to come hang out in Hawaii, right? If we ever make our way out there, I'm all for doing the first surfboard mounted beach cast.
1: Yes. I'm terrified of sharks. Uh, and also volcanoes and also hurricanes. So, <laughs> and I'm poor, so I'm not a hundred percent sure we're going to make it out there, but if we do, we will take you up on that.
0: Yeah. We'd love to hang out. And this is a great question. I mean, so he's basically asking what, if anything, can we rightly extend from this idea of federal headship to the role of men as husbands and fathers? And, He's looking specifically at Romans 5, and that's the reference to federal headship about the first Adam and the second Adam, Christ, and then Ephesians 5, which is the traditional charge to husbands and wives and their respective roles under and in the community of God. But this is a place where I think we have to be careful about what we try to drag forward from Romans 5 yeah. into Ephesians 5, at least categorically. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, I used to be of the opinion that um, the husband was the federal head of his family. And I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers with this, but I don't actually think that's the case. So, you know, in a lot of kind of... particularly fundamental independent Baptist churches, there's this, this diagram that's really popular. That's like a series of umbrellas and the biggest umbrella is Jesus. And then underneath that umbrella is the husband. And under that umbrella is the wife. And under that umbrella are the children. And so the idea is that like all of, all of, relationality is built in this sort of like series of concentric federal headships. And right. the problem with that is I just don't I don't see that in the Bible. So the the reason I say that is that the the features of federal headship that we we depend on in terms of soteriology are things like the transfer of merit between from federal head to those, un, you know, those under headship Um, or the transfer of sin or the, the participation of sin in the federal head. So, you know, in Adam, we all sinned and therefore we all fell in him. And in Christ, we are given Christ's merit and he's able to give us that merit because of the federal headship of Christ. Now, when we swing over to, um, you know over to marriage or or children it's not as though as a husband if my if my wife sins that somehow i'm culpable for that sin now there may be instances where her sinning is already a result of my sin that maybe my failure to lead my my home properly has led her into a sinful situation she's culpable for that sin I'm not culpable for her individual sin, even if it was a sinful act of neglect on my part that enabled that sin. Um, And sometimes I think this gets confused because people look at Adam and Eve and they think, well, Eve was under Adam's federal headship. And so, um, you know, when she fell or when she sinned, it didn't, you know, it didn't cause the problem. But when he sinned, it did. Well, that's a little different because it's Adam. Right. So Eve was under his federal headship in one sense, in the exact same way you and I are. Um, now, how much and what kind of federal headship a husband has over his wife is kind of what we're talking about. And I'm just not, I'm not convinced that there's all that much, if anything, in the sense that we're talking about.
0: I agree. It's all about the sense of the word. And I think what we can do well is to protect what federal headship means by not conflating it with leadership in marriage. Right. And so when in Romans in 5, when Paul puts all this emphasis on one man. He keeps going up to one man. So he's he's indicating that he viewed both Adam and Christ as like what we're talking about historical individuals who acted representatively as covenant heads on behalf of the of the other. Right. That there's no like real good proxy or you know analog for that in marriage. You know, in fact, not in that specific sense. So like in fact, in verse two of that chapter, when Paul is saying, you know, and our hope does not put us to shame. This hope that he's speaking about is guaranteed here and now by the love of God that the Holy Spirit pours into believers' hearts. So if we try to translate that into marriage, like what's the guarantee of our marriages? All this falls apart because like you said, we're not true representatives in the same sense. So there's a lot in Romans 5 that we can pull forward in terms of we're seeing the example of Christ in his service, and I think there is some good parallels there. But I think it's a little bit dangerous just to use that same terminology and conflate the two because it has a better chance of being abused than being understood correctly when we pull that same term forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. And, and one of the things that I think is important when you study covenant theology, um, the point is almost always made at one point or another that in the New Testament, the word that is used for covenant is diatheke. Right, and and then the point, the contrary point, or the, the maybe the complementary point, is made that in Greek there's also a similar term for covenant that's called suntheke. And that that soon at the s y n or it's like the same root as we get the word synagogue, and it has to do with together. So a diatheke is a covenant that is made almost unilaterally from one party to another. A greater party makes a diatheke with a lesser party in order to affect uh, like a role. So we might think of this as um, like a royal suzerainty treaty. A suntheke is generally made. Across equal partners. And so when we think about marriage, the Bible doesn't use this term, but if we're going to map it up, the marriage covenant up to those kinds of terms, marriage is more of a suntheke than it is a diatheke. Because marriage is a covenant that is made between equals between people who are of the same level. So although a husband is taking on authority in that covenant, that's part of the covenant um, obligations is that the husband takes on authority over his wife in terms of um, leading the house, leading the children. Um, John MacArthur talks about um, kind of the, forget the exact phrase that he's using, but the the weight of final decision that that ultimately the final decision falls on the husband when there's a disagreement. Now, I don't know how much I buy into that on a real strict level, but there's there's some truth to it that what the husband takes on as his part of the covenant in marriage is that leadership responsibility. What the wife takes on is the uh, agreement to be submissive to her husband. But even though those covenant responsibilities are taken on by each party, it's still a covenant that's entered into by uh, equal parties. So prior to the moment when uh, I became Ashley's husband, I was not an authority over her. I wasn't. she she wasn't required to submit to me. She wasn't required to um, you know, take my lead on things. She usually did, but she wasn't required to. There was no obligation there. Uh, because we affirm that a woman is, Uh, subject to her own husband, not to men in general. So this is one of the differences between the so-called biblical patriarchy movement and kind of the classic complementarian movement, is that women in general are not submissive or subordinate to men in general. But in the marriage covenant, women take on the position of the church in that, and men take on the position of Christ. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is getting at. And in that covenant, that is Now a new relationship that is established, but that is not the same as the federal headship that we see between Christ and his people. Um, Even though that analogy plays out in some, some instances, it's still just an analogy. It's not a one-to-one correlation. So I just think we have to be really careful even using the term federal headship because what we're doing is we're taking, we're taking two, two concepts that the Bible uses about, about the marriage in the Bible and we're slamming them together in a way that I'm not actually convinced that the Bible combines. so i don't I don't see that covenant language being used in conjunction with the Bride of Christ analogies in the scripture. So I, I just think we have to be careful because if the Bible doesn't draw that federal language out uh, in reference to marriage, then then we also probably should be careful not to do that.
0: Yeah, and I recognize that most of the time, what people are saying there is they're trying to impose kind of like a junior varsity version of federal headship. I'm not saying exactly the right. same thing, but it's just that using that language implies something very specific, and we ought to protect that meaning in particular. There is some stuff in Romans 5, of course, that does really line up well with Ephesians 5, because Paul transforms the question of how husbands, fathers, and masters dominate to how they can imitate the love of Christ in their own lives by nurturing those under their care. So we do see some of that, of course, reflected in the character of Jesus Christ in Romans 5, as Paul's articulating it. So I want let me just read Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, which is really the heart of that passage of Ephesians 5 that we're referring to. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to the, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So part of the rest of Jonathan's question was, well, where can we kind of put this into practice? And many have made the observation about this particular two sentences that Paul's doing something really particular and unique here that we often just goes over our heads. And that is he's like swapping gender roles In giving this example, he's basically taking the men and giving them responsibilities that were typically handled by women or slaves, particularly washing and doing laundry, basically being cleansed. Yeah. And so he's really emphasizing the magnitude of the meekness and the humility that husbands should exhibit. So for me, when I read this passage, what this reminds me of is, do I give my wife a voice? Even though I am the leader, am I giving her voice? Am I actually listening to her when it comes time to all kinds of things, but especially making hard decisions? How well am I representing her interests? And for people that are in confessional churches in particular, this is a big deal because that leadership, rightfully so, is going to be dominated by male voices. So are those male voices also looking to their sisters and their wives uh, to make sure their, their interests are represented well? And so do we as men direct our families and our churches in glorifying God so well that our wives, our children, our sisters in Christ want to respond in like fashion. So I think those are all questions that come, at least in a derivative nature from Romans 5, but they're especially present in that little passage in Ephesians.
1: Yeah. And like I said, this is just one of those areas that we just have to be really cautious because um, although most people don't draw these kinds of what I would say are kind of extreme conclusions about federal headship and in marriage— there are some branches of Christianity, some in the biblical patriarchy movement, that would actually say things like a husband is morally culpable for the sins that their wife commits. And, right. and not in the sense that I was talking about before. Um, you know, Adam was culpable for the fact that Eve ate the apple or whatever it was in that he should have crushed the head of the serpent. So whether we call that sin or not, I suppose is a different question, but Adam was morally responsible for the fact that he did not fulfill his duty as a husband to protect his wife. And he did not fulfill his duty as the covenant keeper of the garden to expel the serpent. He was not responsible, morally culpable for the fact that Eve took a bite of that fruit. That was her culpability. Again, I have a difficult time calling those things sin, um, because the effects of sin don't take place until Adam eats of the apple. Um, why that is, you know, there's all sorts of speculation, but there are, like I said, there are some in certain strands of the biblical patriarchy movement that would say the opposite that Adam, that Eve doesn't bear, doesn't bear moral culpability for that because Adam should have stopped her. And so it's actually Adam's sin. And that can just be really dangerous. And I think, unfortunately, um, This also ends up where if if we're the federal heads to our wives, then we end up in some senses become we become mediators of the covenant of grace to them. And that's that's one of the main critiques that I have of that umbrella picture that I talked about earlier is, although I don't think that this is what they were trying to communicate, um, they, they communicate this idea that like wives don't go to Jesus for protection and for help. They go to their husbands and their husbands are the ones that protect them. And Jesus is sort of like empowering her, their husbands to do that. But they, it ends up with this sort of weird mediation of the covenant of grace and the benefits of the covenant of grace that happens through the husband um, and then through the husband and the, the, the mother when we're talking about children that I just think really does damage to the reformed understanding of covenant theology.
0: Right on. Which we yeah, think
1: is the biblical understanding
0: of covenant theology. It, exactly. I mean, in the final analysis, it's like you said, I'm sure that's not the actual intent, but the language is going to lead you there. And it opens up at least the possibility that you might end up with that kind of behavior. So I'm, I'm pretty sure, of course, that's not where Jonathan was going. But no, nonetheless, great question, because it at least allows us to really think very thoughtfully about what these things mean.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's do the next one.
0: Let's do it
3: so as uh
5: presbyterian Pedro baptist uh how do what do we do with the um apparent uh failure of god's promise to be a god to us and to our children um it seems that when you when you read um what well, more so to the children part looking at children who never actually come to faith they never actually enter into the rest of faith um so what do we do with that, even though God promised um, to be their God or to uh, to save them in, in some sense? because if you look at you know chapters like jeremiah thirty one and thirty two it seems pretty conclusive like the promise is like stout and like hard and like it, it's gonna come to pass and yet we get to the to the to the covenant now and it's not, not quite as efficacious as it, as the scripture presents it so i just don't know what we do with you know the the seeming failure of god's promise concerning the children of believers who never come to faith all right thanks i hope i uh worded that right all right
0: all right so this is i mean we just got great questions we as usual this is a, another great question and basically if i had to summarize it up It's how should Paedo-Baptists handle the apparent failure of God's promise to be a God to their children when their children do not come to faith? So I'm going to leave this to you, basically, since you are the resident Paedo-Baptist here. But even I would understand that, of course, some would say that baptism is by divine authority substitute for circumcision as the initiatory sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So it's possible we need to be kind of given some definition of terms here. But I, I will turn that over to you and put it in your capable baby baptizing hands.
1: So I think um first of all I've never baptized a baby or anyone. But second of all, I think there's a little bit of category confusion that's going on in this question. Um, We don't know who this is because they didn't leave a name. So if this is really terribly insulting, then I'm sorry. That's not the intention. But it it sounds to me like this is the kind of question who someone who used to be a Credo Baptist asks – after becoming a pedo and not quite understanding all the implications. Uh, that may not be the case. It may, I don't know. That's just my gut instinct listening to this question. And the reason I say that is that um, the promise for God to be a God to our children, um, that is still a promise that is conditioned by faith. And so the, the sign of Infant baptism is applied to infants, not because we believe, you know, there's some that do hold to what's called presumptive regen- regeneration. Uh, and the idea is that we treat our children like they're regenerate until we are, are given a reason to think otherwise. But that's actually kind of a minority position in the Reformed, in the the Baptist world. A- and more or less, the, the position that's represented, I'm just going to read it out of the catechism here, is um, question 166 says, Unto whom is baptism to be administered? It says baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church and so strangers from the covenant of promise till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him but infants descending from parents either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to him are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized so paedobaptists of the presbyterian and continental stripe um they they baptize their infants because they believe that their infants are under the administration of the covenant. And this makes sense because we, you know, pay Baptists treat their kids just like any other Christian for the most part. They bring them to church. They, um, they say their prayers with them. They do all the things that you would do with other Christians. We hold them accountable to the law of God. We, um, we expect them to worship Jesus. We do all these things and we treat them as though they're part of the covenant body of people. But we do that outwardly because we don't know the inward state. And so we, we trust that God is um, faithful to his promise. And the promise is that in some sense, our children are set apart and made holy. Uh, we see that in First Corinthians that Paul calls the children of believers Holy. He calls them set apart. He calls them saints. And there are instructions given to children um, in the letters, and says like obey your parents in the Lord. So if it's not possible for children to be in the Lord up to a certain age, then some of those things don't make a, a lot of sense to us as paedobaptists. So we shouldn't we shouldn't read the promise that He will be a God to us and to our children as um, like a unilateral absolute promise that they will come to salvation. Instead, we should read this more along the lines of the the covenant has been applied to them. They've been brought into the covenant. And just like when we see in the Old Testament, people like Ishmael, who are explicitly said not to be recipients before they receive circumcision, said not to be recipients of the covenant promise, but then are commanded to be given the covenant sign. And, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people that are probably better equipped to answer this. Um, JV Fesco's book, uh, word, water and spirit is phenomenal. Um, the work of the Westminster divides on this is just really good. I don't have anything specific to read, uh, to recommend in that, but it, it just seems to me like this promise that you're talking about is not, it's not a promise of salvation. Um, it's a promise of covenant membership, For the children of believers. And because of that covenant membership, we also apply the covenant, uh, the covenant sign, the initiatory sign. And, you know, I think sometimes one of the things that gets underplayed in Presbyterian covenant theology versus um, sort of the Baptist modification, I'm not talking about 1689 federalism, but the, the Baptist appropriation of Presbyterian covenant theology is that in my opinion, Baptist covenant theology, apart from 1689 federalism, doesn't actually have a good grip on what to do with apostasy, right? Because what what is apostasy if not abandoning the covenant Lord that you've sworn fealty to? Well, the problem with that from a Baptist, from a creative Baptist perspective is that a, a person who apostatized, whether they're a child or not, is not part of the covenant. So so it's unclear to me at times what they're apostatizing from. Where in in Presbyterian theology It's clear what they're apostatizing from. They're apostatizing from their membership in the visible church. So when we we apply the covenant signed to our children and then regrettably and sadly, they, they turn away and walk away, that's an act of apostasy from the covenant and the membership in that visible community that they were a part of, just like a person who was circumcised in the old covenant who then walks away from their their covenant membership, is cut off from the people of Israel. They're cut off from the Commonwealth of Israel. Uh, we would say the same thing about someone who's baptized and walks away from their covenant membership, that they're cut off from the Commonwealth of Israel, which is Christ's church. Wow, well said. That was a great explanation. I think I think that I need to
0: go take a nap after that. Though <laughs> you do look exhausted. I do. Well, you, you can't stop, won't stop. Are you do ready you have for another anything one? to
1: add about that uh, from a Baptist perspective? Anything you might want to want to talk about? No, I thought there?
0: that I, not really because I All thought right. that explanation was perfectly suited to the question.
1: Okay, well, let's move on to the next one. We've got two more questions. Two so
0: more. We got to keep ticking along. Can hit a record today. All right, here's the next one.
4: Hey, Jesse and Tony. This is Sean calling from Orlando, Florida. And I just want to uh, make sure that
3: if nobody else does it, I'll go ahead and ask for the uh, nerdy Greek grammar explanation of John 1-1. Thanks. Bye.
0: All right. So my brother, Sean, opening up the door for us to be nerdy and go all out on some Greek.
1: Yes. A different kind of nerdy than Heath and Jeremy are all the time. That's true. That's factually
0: correct. So, We talked in, I think it was our last episode, if I remember correctly, about the need to really be able to converse confidently about John one one and the infamous translation, put that in quotation marks, by the Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation, which reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And we spoke at length about that, but we said, if you want some more, come at me, bro. So basically, here's the invitation. So let me give, I want to give like my, how I explain this generally And then you jump in and let me know your thoughts. But I I want to start because this is coming from somebody that's not a Greek expert to show how untenable the translation from the Jehovah's Witnesses actually is. That even somebody like me, who knows very little about Greek, can understand this in a very clear way. So that third clause in that verse has been the occasion of the great debate and the controversy. And it's mainly due to the fact that the Greek word for God, which is theos there, does not have the definite article the before it. That's where this whole thing stems from. So that third clause in 1, one is what's called a copulative sentence. And that just means it follows a certain format. And the format is there's usually the, a noun, is, insert, predicate, predicative a predicate nominative. And all that means is in Greek, you distinguish the subject of a copulative sentence by which noun has the article in front of it. So this is probably best talked about a quick example. So in John, 1 John 4.8, the last clause in that verse is, reads, God is love. So in Greek, that's actually ho, theos, agape, estin. So that's the verse that most of us are familiar with. So there are two nominative nouns in that sentence, right? There's God, theos, love, agape. But the first noun, God, has the article ho in front of it. So that indicates that God is the subject of the sentence, and love is the predicate. Predicate. I want to say predicative all the time. <laughs> predicate, nominative. So in other words, basically... The second noun, because it lacks the, the article in front of it, is describing the first noun. I mean, that's the telltale sign for which direction we should be going in. So it would be wrong then to translate 1 John 4, 8 as love is God. It's just wrong. Nobody translates it that way, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the only way to make the two nouns interchangeable is to either put the article with both nouns or to not put the article there at all. But as long as one has the article and the other does not, one is definitely the subject and the other is definitely the predicate. So we have the same situation in John 1.1. 1, 1. So the Greek reads, and my Greek is like awful pronunciation. So Tony, cover your ears. <laughs> so the, the end of that verse in John 1.1 1, 1 in Greek reads, Kai theos en ho logos. So notice that the term logos has the article ho, while the term theos does not. So that tells us that the subject of the clause is the logos. So we would not translate the phrase, and God was the word, because that would make the wrong term the subject of the clause. So the term God is the predicate predicate, nominative, and it functions just as love did in 1 John 4.8. It tells us something about the logos, in other words, that the nature of the logos is the nature of God, just as the nature of God in 1 John 4.8 was that of love. So I like best kind of what uh, I think it's Dr. Kenneth West, who is a professor of Greek, He renders that phrase, and the word was as to his essence, absolute deity. So all that just to say, if you even have like a cursory, and I'm talking about like really small, modest understanding of Greek grammar, which you can go get in any kind of ancient Greek text that's going to help you understand the grammatical structure of the language. This is plainly obvious. So what somebody has done, at least Jehovah's Witnesses, is they basically superimpose like the English word structure and sentence structure on a totally different language and then drawn out some kind of conclusion from a faulty structure in a language that doesn't even apply to. What do you think?
1: Yeah, so I have one quick correction of myself from last week. So last week I said that the Jehovah's Witnesses convert a definite article into an indefinite article and that wasn't right. correct so i was looking at the text quickly um, and i was just mis- i just misspoke so what they do is they supply a definite or an indefinite article to the word theos that is not justified um, as i said greek doesn't have an indefinite article so supplying an indefinite article is not necessarily out of balance, but the text doesn't justify it and everything that you said is, is spot on absolutely right but i think we can even get a little simpler than this because greek functions differently than english right in english we have a, a we we determine what a word is doing in the sentence primarily based on where it is where it is in the sentence in relation to others so right. the reason things like yoda speak are so funny to us is because it takes this standard english word order and it tweaks it a little bit so um in english you have the subject of a word. Uh, you have the the verb usually, and then you have what's called the predicate. And the predicate is usually, um, you know, the verb is part of the predicate. It's it's something that tells you more about the noun. So if I say it's Jesse, right, if I say Jesse is going to the store, Jesse is the subject of the sentence, and I'm telling you something about Jesse with the, with the phrase is going to the store, namely that he's going to the store. And if... Um, what a predicate nominative is. Nominative is the subject case. So in that right. in that sentence, Jesse is the nominative. Store is uh, would be an indirect would be an accusative. In a predicate nominative, what you have is you have a connecting verb or a copulative verb is, and you have. Uh, a nominative on both sides. So in English, it's clear to us, which is the subject and which is the nominative because of the word order. But in Greek, you don't have that. And what you would use to tell the difference between a nominative and accusative or a genitive or the other parts of speech is a different form of the word, but you don't have that. So what, what the rule is, is that the most definite concept is the subject. So um, to, to demonstrate this, if I said, a dog is Jesse. Well, that sounds very strange to the human, human mind to the, to the English speaker, because usually a really indefinite concept, like a dog is not the subject of that kind of predicate construction. If I said, Jesse is a dog. Well, that's much clearer. I'm, I've got a definite, a definite concept that I'm describing with an indefinite concept. If I said, the dog is Jesse, well, then that's even still okay, because the dog is a definite concept. And Jesse, I'm describing that dog somehow. So what we have in the Greek here is we have a very definite, the most definite concept you can get in Greek is a word with a definite article, right? And there's, there's kind of this hierarchy of, de- of concepts in terms of their definiteness. But the most definite concept you can have in Greek is a, a word with an article, an arthurist noun. So we know that that's the subject. So it's just a simple, a simple right. case of saying, "Well, okay." So now we know that the subject is, is is and theos is the predicate. Well, the next step is, well, how do we know that this is a definite noun versus an indefinite noun? Well, a little one little trick is that the word theos in Greek is almost always definite, such that unless we have a reason to think that it's not, we should assume that it is. But on top of that, there was a guy named Caldwell, and he looked through the New Testament and also through extra biblical Greek. And what he found is that definite predicate nouns, which precede the verb, usually lack the article. So as I said, there's this kind of hierarchy of definiteness. And so there are different categories of nouns that, that are definite, and we know they're definite, but we know they're definite for some reason other than a definite article. And what he found is that across the whole spectrum of Greek, in the New Testament, in extra-biblical Greek, when one of those definite uh, nouns that doesn't have an article comes before the verb in a predicate nominative, we know that the, that is not the subject. That's the object. Right? And right. we know it's definite or it's indefinite. We know that it's definite. <laughs> because it is a definite concept. So, um, just like if I said, um, sometimes you hear like a, a, an English as a second language speaker who might might add a, an article somewhere it should be shouldn't be, right. or might not include an article where it should. They might say like, um, "I am going to store." Well, okay, so that might be because they come from a language that doesn't have a definite article, but we still know that store is the. Object because of word order, but also because store is not a definite concept. So some of this is actually kind of instinctual. If you read Greek and you understand the language um, and the way that it works, um, you still wouldn't. But the, the reason that this is confusing for us in English is because the word God in English is also definite. It's like a name. We use it like a proper noun. So to say the word was God. Well, we know that that's definite and that's the same kind of thing. It almost feels um, it feels unnatural for us to add an indefinite article to a name. So if I said um, that person over there is a Jesse, well, that feels a little weird. Um, It's kind of why like our phrase that someone is innate is kind of funny. It's sort of, it's humorous because it takes a normal English convention. It kind of flips it on its head and it turns a definite concept of Nate, some person named Nate that this is patterned after, and it turns it into a descriptor that, that is indefinite in nature. So that's a lot to say that like, this isn't as, this isn't as foreign and alien as you think it is. It's actually really instinctual in English and they can get away with it because you're not familiar with the Greek, um, the Greek grammar. So your suggestion of taking a little bit of time and familiarizing yourself with that basic Greek grammar of this. um, There's a website called a daily dose of Greek that is primarily designed for people who've already taken Greek and are using it to kind of keep up their Greek. But what they do is every day they go through a verse and they, they put the verse in Greek up and then they translate it on the fly and make comments about the grammar. Something as simple as doing that and seeing how Greek sentences are usually constructed is uh, very helpful in this kind of scenario. Sorry about the that, hiccups I've got going on. It Makes for great podcasting.
0: Yeah, that it's, it sounds great on this end. I figured it was just because we were talking about so much uh, Greek structure and grammar. Yeah, you're just you're just getting super excited.
1: I was getting super excited.
0: Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the big takeaway here is that I like what you said about it being instinctual. What's funny about what I was what you were saying as I was kind of processing it was that. It is instinctual at the level of we know that the most definite object in the sentence is the subject. No matter what right. language you're speaking, when that's emphasized appropriately, it becomes obvious. And so yep. that's what's going on here. So we could have made this more simple. However, it would have been nearly as nerdy. So, <laughs> so I feel like we really crushed this question because yes. I'm glad that somebody like entertained us. Like it almost sounded like with reservation, Sean was like, "Okay, yeah, <laughs> fine. Yeah. You guys really want to talk about it? Clearly, so go ahead." Yeah.
1: Well, if there's anybody that's still listening, we have one
3: more <laughs> question to go over.
0: Yeah, one more. Here we go.
3: Hey, gentlemen, it's Jim from Philadelphia. Uh, just listened to the podcast on preaching, and I know most of my questions seem to deal with cessationism, but that's just the context I'm in in church lately. But I was listening to your comments on how the Puritans and some others of their era referred to preaching as prophecy um, I was wondering what you thought about the appropriateness of that language being that you're cessationists um, that we prophecy is the inspired word of God it is infallible um, and with the canon being closed that these there is no new prophecy um, with that in mind I was wondering if you'd come across uh, Vern Poitras's essay about the analog, modern being spiritual gifts being analogous to the apostolic gifts. Um, wondering what your thoughts were on that if that would be, point to the appropriateness of referring to certain things as modern day prophecy um, and what caveats you'd probably put on using the word prophecy in modern context. Thanks again for the podcast and all that you do um, and if we're looking to suggest preachers Ajay Thomas of Seven Mile Road, Philly Check him out. Love the guy. He's my preacher and love being submitted to his, elder, his leadership as well as our two other elders. Grace and peace.
0: All right. So, our brother Jim in Philadelphia has a good question. And I think what we should probably focus on is he's referencing something very specific. It's an essay. Are you familiar with the essay that he's talking about? I'm not, no. If I, Vern Poitras? That's okay, because I, I have a, basically his thesis, which I'll throw at you in a second. But the question is, how do we feel about Vern Poitras' essay on modern day spiritual gifts being analogous to the apostolic gifts? So let me give you the thesis from his essay. This is his words, not mine. So I'll, I'll throw it out there, and then I have a feeling you're going to have some reaction to it. I'm pretty sure. All right. So here we go. <laughs> here, Here's his words from his article. It's a, it's a very long essay. It's worth reading. It's a little bit technical, but it's, it's pretty interesting. At least it's thought for So here's what he says. Modern spiritual gifts are analogous to, but not identical with, the divine authoritative gifts that are exercised by the apostles. Since there is no strict identity... Apostolic teaching and the biblical canon have exclusive divine authority. On the other hand, since there is analogy, modern spiritual gifts are still genuine and useful to the church. Hence, there is a middle way between blanket approval and blanket rejection of modern charismatic gifts, end quote. So he's basically promulgating or putting forward some middle ground here to kind of say that there's a legitimate reason for charismatic gifts to exist in this kind of modern epoch without saying that they're entirely apostolic in the same sense, but while also not negating them completely. So what are your initial reactions to that?
1: Yeah, I've never been a huge fan of Vern Poitras, and I suppose I'll have to read the essay before I make a final decision. But if he's saying that the modern charismatic gifts are in a sense first, legitimate, and second, continuations, in a sense, of the apostolic gifts, then I definitely have to disagree. Um, An approach that I thought was helpful that reading the question and listening to it, I thought might be going this direction, is um, Nick Batsig, who used to be a regular contributor on Reform Forum. Um, he wrote a article for uh, Modern Reformation and basically argued kind of along the same lines that I was talking about with prophecy and preaching last time around that episode is that the spiritual gifts that we see in the um, Old Testament and in the New Testament, particularly the apostolic gifts have been sort of transmuted into the regular ordinary gifts of ministry. So we have apostles prophets and evangelists. And, and those, those offices and the gifts that come with them have kind of been transformed into the ordinary offices of teacher and pastor. So, so the pastor, as I said, is taking the word of God, which is given to us in the scripture and is communicating the words of God, the word of God, um, both the words of God and also the word of God in a more kind of big picture concept to the people the, in a similar way that the prophet did, only he's not doing it by means of revelation that was granted directly to him, but by means of mediated revelation through the scriptures. So I think we have some space to understand that a cessationist doesn't believe that all of a sudden God pulled the plug on the provisions for the church. It's not like he said, all right, well, you're done with those. We're all set. We don't need any more Holy Spirit driven uh, pr- you know, gifts we don't need that anymore um but it, i don't think it's quite right to say that um modern day charismatics and this may not be what Porthos is saying I, I don't know but it's not quite right to say that modern day charismatic gifts are sort of uh, like a sub subversion or like a junior varsity version of the apostolic gifts which from that thesis statement it sounds like what he's trying to get at i don't i don't know if i'm reading that right i haven't read the article
0: it's a little bit of both. So like in, in Poitras's defense, he does present this pyramid schema where he talks about what you're saying there. So at the top, he has what we call like messianic, and that is only applies to Christ as totally infallible authority. Then at the bottom level, at the base, he has every believer's involvement um which is kind of what you're saying and in the middle he's got the gifts being transferred essentially to the roles of of pastor and teacher but i think he's going beyond that it's it's a little bit strange to me because i think what he's doing in trying to find some middle ground it just gets very confusing so he does yeah. say that gifts with unqualified divine authority have ceased with the apostles so we pretty much agree there he says all gifts today have qualified authority and thus although they're analogous to apostolic gifts you know, we preach today, for example, like he says, the apostles did, they're not identical. So that is like they differ in authority. What's really interesting, at least like cerebrally stimulating is he focuses on the process by which your ideas come about. And this is where I think he gets unnecessarily confusing and perhaps moves in a direction that would be harmful. I I definitely wouldn't agree with this direction. So he tries to differentiate between discursive and non-discursive ideas. So ideas, he says like ideas are discursive when they have in mind some kind of conscious basis, like the biblical text. So preaching would fall into that category. Then this other non-discursive category is when we are not consciously aware of the source of our ideas. And that would be like hunches, feelings, intuition, stuff like that. So what he attempts to do is provide a framework that affirms the work of God in modern day non-discursive events while still upholding the sufficiency and finality of scripture. And that is confusing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, That's like some, I would say, really slippery and dangerous terrain. And I think that's really the heart of his article is he's contending that the controversial gifts, so like what do you consider prophecy? Prophecy, not in the sense of preaching, but prophecy and actually like looking forward in the future. Word of knowledge, tongues, all that stuff. They are non-discursive. And so he, he's still engendering them with value. He's in, in putting in them value, but he's trying to differentiate. Well, it's not the same as the these same types of things, even in the apostolic era, because they would be discursive, but now they're non-discursive. And so I think actually that's part of our problem is that many think that God is actually more involved in non-discursive processes rather than the what he called discursive ones, which is the scripture itself and everything that comes from the scripture is supported by the scripture. So I think it's a little bit problematic. I'm not, I'm definitely not on the same page with him. I can see some of where he wants to go, but I don't think that we should go there.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to be charitable with how I say this, but, um, Vern Porthry is one of those people that at times strikes me as sort of too smart for his own good. Um, Oh, he's wicked smart. He he seems like at times he almost like Over-analyze the things, which I know is kind of like the love language of theologians is to overanalyze things. But I'm also concerned at times with sort of the association he has with John Frame and not as like a guilt by association kind of thing. But he he puts his imprimatur on a lot of on all of John, most of John Frame's work. And John Frame's work uh, from a kind of classically reformed perspective is is usually just bad. Um, John Frame kind of does this sort of like non-regulative regulative principle of worship and he does this sort of uh, changeable immutability. So so Frame is stepping in a lot of ways outside of uh, reformed orthodoxy and Porthris doesn't, in my experience, doesn't quite do that, but he doesn't seem bothered by the fact that a website that bears his name that he shares with Don frame. John frame does that on a regular basis. So I'm right. always a little bit gun shy with Poythress because Cause I'm not, I'm not always hundred percent sure where he stands in terms of, of being within that confessional stream. Um, I don't know if he steps outside of it the way that Poythress does it or that frame does at times. Um, but I say that just to say, I'm not a hundred percent sure whether he's actually upholding a cessationism or not. And because right, of exactly. that, I'm very gun shy because it doesn't seem like stepping outside of confessional boundaries would bother him all that much. And so I would not be surprised if he was actually opening the door for a kind of um, quote unquote reformed continuationism or reformed charismaticism. Right. So I don't know. I, I don't have a problem calling, prof- uh, calling preaching prophesying um if we understand that in sort of the william perkins sense that yes. um when the when the pastor opens the word of god and preaches it it's the word of god being preached not not just the words of man um but as far as like tying it to the actual immediate you know immediate revelation of god to a prophet that's then being foretold that to me uh, that's a bridge too far for me to cross i don't think i could go there
0: I agree. And you're right on because I think you would find some of the strange ambiguity in this particular article. It's strange because Poiotris agrees that with that definition of prophecy but also goes above and beyond that. And what's somewhat confusing is he actually acknowledges that these non-discursive gifts so to speak that they're not divinely authoritative. But then he goes further and says, "But neither does that make them useless." And he yeah. basically says if if teaching content is involved, Arising non-discursively, then it should be believed if it's biblical and disbelieved if it's not. And you want to be like, yeah, no, <laughs> no yeah. kidding. Like that's so. we're what are we? Tra- what are we trying to get at here? It's it's mainly like, of course, we should be exercising absolute biblical discernment. But it almost seems like at some point he's he's saying a lot with words, but he's not giving a lot of meaning there. And I do think you're right. This does leave a wide open door for some kind of strange form of reformed continuism. So yeah, I, I'm not entirely even sure where he's going with this, but it does seem like it, it might be a little bit too smart for one's own good.
1: Yeah. And um, just to kind of wrap things up, you know, Jimmy mentioned we should listen to his pastor, right? Did yes, I hear that? So, he did. so we mentioned on our preaching and prophesying episode that we wanted to become a place where you could come to get good sermons, not in addition to, to good theological podcasts. Um, and we, and by we i mean me have discovered how to do that. So if you go to uh, reformbrotherhood.com uh/trb sermon, you're going to find a bunch of technical jargon, but that's because it's an RSS feed. So if you plug that RSS feed into your podcatcher or into iTunes, you're going to get a list of you're going to get a, a podcast of the sermon feeds that Jesse and I are listening to that our listeners have recommended. You can also go to the website and see some of that parsed out in a little more presentable fashion. But I went ahead and added Jimmy's pastor to that list. So if you were to subscribe to this, you'll get all of his sermons uh, in addition to a few other feeds directly to your phone.
0: Excellent. What other What other podcast does that? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know of any. Yeah. See, the, the closest thing is
1: the mega feed. <laughs>
0: Which if you we go over some- to,
1: to ReformPodcast dot com, you can subscribe to our mega feed and then you get all of our lovely voices delivered directly to your phone without having to have eight different subscriptions.
0: That's a beautiful thing right there. It is. Speaking of the mega feed and other podcasts that are part of the Society of Reform Podcasters, there is one final question that we did receive that people should listen to, but we probably don't need to answer it. It's true. So our good friend <laughs> Terry jetpack, Terry jetport,
1: one hundred percent go balls all the time. Left <laughs> a message for didn't us. Know what that means? So we will just leave you with this message, and then uh, at that point, Jeremy can sing, or Brandon, or whoever it is that sings. No, right. nobody knows what we're talking about. It's right fine. Now. That that's a shout out for our society peoples. Speaking of society peoples, we also just started a brand new Facebook group called the Society of Reformed People that uh, is going to be kind of a place for all of our listeners, for all the Society of Reformed Podcasters uh, shows to gather and have not just a mega feed, but the mega group. So check it out Um, right now. It's, it's not invitation only, but we do need to approve you. So check it out, go log in there. Um, You know, we love voicemails. We love emails, but if you want to have an ongoing conversation with uh, the people who are on the podcast, that's the best place to do it.
0: If if you're looking for yet another place online to debate baptism, (laughs) This probably isn't that place.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, it probably is. Anywhere reformed Christians gather is a place to debate.
0: There's a place for, there's always a place for a little baptism debate. So let's give you some, we'll give everybody some digits. If you want to participate in shooting us uh, some questions, we'd of course love to hear from everybody all over the world. Call us 607-444-2767. Bros. And we will leave you with Terry Jetport.
2: Alright guys. Um this is Terry Jetport calling in and I got some questions for you about the about the heretic cast. I was thinking that uh maybe the fact that uh Jesus is God's son means that um you know that maybe God Uh, gave, uh, you know, had him at some point and he wasn't always existing in eternal, uh, times. And I was thinking maybe, uh, that's not heretic, but that's like legitimate. And, um, and maybe you guys could tell me if I'm a heretic or not. So, uh, Terry Jetport, uh, I think Jesus. Was, uh, maybe not created, but, but created, you know, before time began. And, uh, that, because that's why he's called God's Son. So, uh, maybe tell me if, uh, if I'm a heretic or not. Alright, talk to you later. Bye. Hey, uh, uh, Reform Brothers Hood, um you know, I was, uh, it's, it's Terry Jetport again. It's Terry Jetport again. Uh, Look, uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, teaching Sunday school class to a a bunch of uh, uh, second graders, and I was wondering uh, about how to uh, talk to them about the Trinity, and uh, I wanted to give you guys some examples of some analogies, some uh, uh, things I was going to do, and you tell me if they're good, okay? So uh, one of them is like the Trinity is like, uh, water. So water is liquid. It's soft, solid like ice and it's a gas like steam. And that's like the Trinity. God, uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit the Trinity, right? And then uh, another one I was thinking was really good was uh, the Trinity's like an egg. And then so there's the egg. It's like a shell. It's the yolk. And it's the egg whites, right? So that's that's like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So tell me what you guys think about that one. Oh, and then also there's another example of a Trinity that I really like, uh, and I heard this from a real good teacher one time. A Trinity uh, is like, uh, you know, uh, God is one, right? Like I'm just this, this one person, but I'm also a father, and I'm a son, and I'm a husband. So that's a good, uh, trinity. It's like, i my name is Terry Gephardt, but I'm a father, and I'm a son, and I'm a husband. So that's, uh, the father, son, Holy Spirit trinity. Uh, and then another one I was thinking was, uh, it's like a three leaf clover, right? There's three parts of the clover, but, uh, but it's just one clover. That's the three in one. So tell me if you think these are going to be good for the second graders here at church. Uh, this is Terry Jetport, uh, uh, signing off. Talk to you guys later. Reform Brothershood. Uh, what if I'm-